for submitting your questions. It's been real great to be able to kind of get in there in the Word of God and wrestle with these. And that was kind of my disclaimer with this whole series, was that we are using the Bible to navigate these questions. Okay, I know that this is not the way our culture handles these questions, but it's how we handle them. As Christians, we believe the Bible is our authoritative book of how we should live our lives. It helps us to see what God's will is concerning areas of life. And sometimes the Bible doesn't specifically deal with a named matter, but it shows us principles. And so my whole point in sharing this series with you is we're going to go to the Bible and where it specifically addresses these, we're going to bring that to light. But there will be times the Bible doesn't specifically name that item or mention it specifically, but there are principles with which we can use to navigate those questions. And so we started this whole series talking about end-of-life questions, and if you missed that first message, you can go on our website, albanync.org, and it's available there. If you use iTunes and happen to podcast, you can find us there as well, and you'll receive those right into your uh, podcast stream on a weekly basis. Also, if you have downloaded our church app uh, through whatever device you use, just uh, it's Neighborhood Church app. And some of you may have to actually put in Share Faith Neighborhood Church to get the app because it's powered by Share Faith. Um, And those messages also get delivered and pushed to you directly into that app as well. Uh, But we talked about end-of-life issues, including suicide, and that that was a a great question that was asked. And maybe some of you know some loved ones who made that choice, and you're wondering, what now? And so go back and listen to that first message, end-of-life. Then last week, we began... uh, well, I thought it was going to be just one standalone message, but we discovered it's a really deep topic. And we began talking about sexual sin and gender issues. And so we looked at Scripture last week on this, on this idea of sexual sin, uh, specifically last week addressing homosexuality uh, and what the Bible has to say about that. Now, I'm not going to re-preach last week's message for you, but I will just kind of briefly review because it kind of ties in now to part two that I thought we would get to last week, but we didn't. But what I want to just help you understand when we're talking about homosexuality or sexual sin or gender issues, what I want us to understand is these are just not issues to be debated. These are people, okay? These are people you love. These are people that you know that you care about. And I think when we approach topics like this, it's easy for us, especially in the faith community, to look at it through a judgmental lens and just see it as an issue to bring clarity to and and to speak at, when the reality is you know somebody who has been dealing with sexual sin um, or homosexuality, same-sex attraction, or some gender identification issues, and you know you can't just come at them with an argument, right? They're people. People willing, of our lo- uh, who willing to receive our love, to be valued, yes, to, to talk about this with grace and truth, because you do care about them. So please hear, again, my heart is not to cast stones or be judgmental on these issues, but to raise awareness what the Bible says about sexual sin, but recognize that even Jesus, as he ministered to people who were broken by their life choices concerning their sexuality, he treated them gracefully with respect, and he loved them. Because he didn't see issues when he came to this world. It doesn't say, for God so loved the issues, right? God so loved the world, he became humanity to come and not just talk to issues, but to love people and to communicate truth to people who needed to hear truth. 
And so when we talked about homosexuality specifically, the question that was asked was basically a, a two-pronged question. Um, gay people say they're Christians and think they're saved, but the Bible says differently. I'm just quoting the question that was submitted. This is not my spin on it. This is how it was submitted to me. And so if all sin is sin, what makes being gay different than being a sinner? And so we talked about, um, is it a sin to practice homosexual um, activity? And what we created was a framework because we don't want to necessarily talk about what we're against in the faith community. I think we should talk about what we're for. And what we are for is God's design for sexuality. And I was talking to somebody after last week's message, and they said, you know, I have never heard the word sex so many times in church. (laughs) But you know what? This is a great place to talk about what God's design was for sex. Because I want to tell you right now, that sex was a gift from God to be enjoyed within a certain context. Sex is not, in the purest form of what God designed, sex is not dirty. And maybe you grew up and and when you had questions about sexuality and you went to mom or dad or whoever was a caring adult in your life and you started trying to talk about it, it was like, oh, don't talk about that, that's dirty. And you had this sense that, that sex is dirty. Biblical sex is beautiful. It's a gift God gave us. But he gave it to us with some context. So we looked at that in Genesis chapter 1, the creation account. Genesis 2, the creation of man and woman. And we discovered that for this reason, a man will leave his mother and father and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So what we see established in the Bible becomes a filter through how we look at any other sexual activities. Well, what we basically came to terms with is that God's design for sex was to be in the context of a marriage covenant relationship between one man and one woman. So when we look at any other sexual sin through that filter, we began to recognize it's not just homosexuality that is labeled as a sexual sin. When it was supposed to be between one man and one woman in marriage covenant, and you put that filter over any other sexual issue, you begin to discover this is a big issue. And it's also a big issue in the church. Because you put that over um, addiction to pornography, all of a sudden you have an issue. You put that over um, affairs outside of marriage, you have an issue. Okay, So we're not just saying it's about one group of people. When we look at God's design... For sexuality, he has given us a very clear picture that was also affirmed by Jesus in the New Testament and by Paul. And so when we look at homosexuality through that lens, it would be considered a sin because it's outside of God's design for sexuality. Now, then the question would be, then can a gay person be a Christian? We looked at that. And we said, how does any sinner become a Christian, right? We admit our need of a Savior. We believe Jesus is that Savior who came as the Son of God to die for us. We confess our sins, we repent of our sins, and we follow Him. If you were a liar before you got saved and you became a a Jesus follower, you'd made decisions not to keep lying, and you you honored Him, hopefully. It doesn't mean you're perfect, but you made steps in the right direction. That applies to any any, any sin, because we tend to categorize sin, don't we? This is bad. This is, this is an okay sin. This is a little white sin. This is a black sin. You know, we have these kind of, you know, and you know why we do that? Because the Bible says there's a moral code of God, and anything that happens outside of that is sin. So why do we categorize? We categorize, I think, because there are sins that do actually have deeper consequence than other sins. 
It's not about it being more sinful. It's about there are consequences that are bigger for certain sins. It doesn't make that sin bigger. It just means when you do something, it has a bigger consequence. That's why I think we tend to categorize. Well, that's a little sin because it has a little consequence. It's a big sin because it has big consequences. And somehow we have labeled homosexuality like the unpardonable sin, and it's not. Like any sin, it can be forgiven, and that person can enter a redeemed life with Jesus and make a decision to follow him and honor him with his or her body. And we, we know that's a hard call for a person who feels attracted to the same gender. How can I live without intimacy? And you know, uh, one of the books I read that I think brought a remarkable point to this, it's called Good Faith, as the name of the book's called Good Faith. Um, and what they talked about is, in the church, we're going to be discovering people who either have currently, are dealing with same-sex attraction, or people who have come out of a lifestyle of homosexuality as, as a gay or a lesbian. They're going to be coming to the church. Because I believe, here's what I discovered, and what you know to be true. When we think our desire is the end game and we keep pursuing that, we still feel empty. I mean, some of you have discovered that. You pursued that desire, you pursued that desire, and it left you wanting it didn't satisfy. And I think we're going to have a culture of people who are told, yes, you can identify however you want to and find satisfaction, and they're going to do that, and they're not going to find satisfaction. And they're going to look for eternal hope. They're going to look for something that gives them a sense of belonging and a sense of answer and purpose that's outside of themselves. Our culture says, look inside yourself to find who you really are. And the Bible says, no, you got to look outside yourself to find who you really are, that you're a created child of God, and you find your purpose not in exploring your feelings and, and pursuing your passions, but you find them in connecting with the creator of the, of the world and of, of who you are. And so we have to understand that when it comes to this issue, we can't look within for the answers. We have to look without, and we find the hope of of Christ Jesus. So I believe that there's going to come a time when they're going to come to the church looking for answers. And friends, I want to be a church that says, you're welcome here. You're welcome here. You're welcome to find hope here and healing here. Because when we preach Jesus, I believe that, like it says, when we lift up Jesus, people are drawn to him. And we're going to see in scripture when I get to it. Some of you are wondering, is this guy ever going to get to the message today? I am. We're going to see that Jesus, as he interacted with people, was attractive in what he did. And I believe we need to be a church that will reach people who will find hope. Now, here's why I want to talk about this before we move on. I believe what people who are coming out of, out of homosexuality need is a sense of belonging. And we have to be a faith community who will embrace people who have come out of a lifestyle of homosexuality. Because they may not be able to ever have an expression of that desire played out in relationship. But if they feel like they belong and they're a part of a family and they have a sense of intimacy that comes with relationship, not physical intimacy, but just the sense of being one with a group of people, it, it's going to be significant for them. And so I think that's one of the things we're called to be as the body of Christ, is we're called to be a family to all people who come. So they can find belonging and a sense of identity as the body of Christ. And so that's going to challenge some of our philosophies. When we begin seeing people come into the church, they're kind of going, I don't think those kind of people should be in church. Let me remind you what Jesus said when he hung out with sinners and tax collectors and he was accused by Pharisees of mingling with sinners and terrible people. He said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick. 
right? That's Jesus. And we get it all backwards and think to come here, you got to be all spiffy clean and perfect and you might belong someday. No. Our approach is the same way. Our community is full of people who need to discover hope. And we believe true hope is found in relationship with Jesus. So, we looked at those last week. So the next question that was, was coming up from that, and, and uh, I know that one of the questions I wanted to tackle, and if we have time, maybe at the end of, of the day's message, I will, but it, it's the question of, if God made me gay, then why is it wrong for me to act upon my desires? Uh, and I, do want to, I, I think I do want to t- attack that question here, but maybe at the end if we have time. I want to move into now, though, how should we as Christians, how should we interact with people who are currently living in sexual brokenness, all right? So here's the question that was posted. Uh, The question is, because adultery, divorce are condemned in the Bible, why is homosexuality so much more out there to Christians? There are some wonderful homosexuals out there. I'm having trouble with this as a Christian. So that was the question as submitted. Again, I don't modify your questions. I just put them up on the screen as you submitted them. So According to the Bible, as I've already said, homosexuality is not so much more out there than any other sin. We just tend to categorize it, right? We've already said sin is sin. And we need to stop categorizing and measuring sin and see it just as God does. That, it, yes, it is sin and it needs to be brought to the cross of Christ. It needs to find its true forgiveness through Christ and then it needs to move into a life of sanctification, which is that big word which means just becoming more like what Christ wants us to become like by the help of the Holy Spirit. And I agree, there are some wonderful gay and lesbian people in our community. Just as there are very wonderful adulterers and porn addicts and liars in our communities, okay? It's it's not a matter of making them substandard or less quality of people. I believe they are very wonderful people. So how should Christians treat those who are living in the LGBTQ lifestyle. What should we do? How do we interact with them? Because what we've done, honestly, is we've treated people poorly. Because we've made it an issue to be fixed, not a person to be valued, understood, and then with grace and truth approached in conversation about these things. And what happens is it's an us-against-them mentality, and it's terrible, and it needs to stop. Jesus didn't have an us-against-them mentality when he came to minister to people. So what do we do? I think we do the same thing Jesus did. We treat them the same way Jesus treated people who he met who were living in lifestyles of sexual sin. And we have three examples in Scripture specifically about this. And the reason I want to use these... and is to help us understand um, kind of the same cultural viewpoint toward these sins that we tend to project today on the gay community, all right? So let me just give you some context, because there, yeah, there are three examples in Scripture of Jesus interacting, and these are all three, all three of these are women who have a sordid past, uh, all of which probably had to do with sexuality, had to do with sexual sin, all right? Um, the reason I want to bring this up is because culturally, for Jesus, who was considered a rabbi, a teacher, a religious teacher, for Jesus to have conversations with women, period, was no-go. Okay? According to most Jewish rabbis, they wouldn't talk to women. So ladies, you have to understand that when Jesus came, he elevated the quality of womanhood. 
So that's important for you to understand. I know that's, that's important now. We get it as a culture, but he didn't minimize women. In fact, he would talk to women. And not only did he talk to women, but he talked with women who were considered to be unapproachable and to be marginalized and pushed aside, that nobody else would even entertain talking to. In fact, we're going to see that the Samaritan woman was surprised that Jesus would even talk to her. Because he was a Jew and she was a Samaritan. So we not only have women who were sexually uh, broken in, the, in their past stories, but we have a Samaritan woman who would be considered the farthest out of reach from Jesus. If there was ever anybody who should not be approached by Jesus, it was her. But I think we're going to see what we're going to see in John 4 is Jesus intentionally went right to where he knew she would be. Because that's what Jesus does. And if we can just begin to embody in how we approach this conversation like Jesus does, it would transform the way the gay community views evangelical faith. Because I know that they feel like we're homophobes. I mean, I, I get it. They think we're totally afraid of them and we hate them. And some of that, they have good ammo because some under the banner of Christianity have bashed those people. And it's been un unfair. It's been harsh. I get it. But that's not what Jesus did. He didn't come bashing people. All right. So we see three examples, and these are important because, like I said, if there was to ever to be an equation of how Christians today view the, the, the gay community, it would be the way that the, the Jewish people in this day and age viewed women who were sexually broken. Okay? So we have kind of a similar parallel of viewpoints. Now, what I want us to do, there's three of them, and Lord knows we're not going to have time to go to all three of these texts. So I'm just going to give you the quick short story. Some of you are going, I don't even know any of those stories, all right? So um, very quickly, the very first one, John 8, we have a woman who was actually caught in the act of adultery, okay? So that means the religious leaders were basically doing a sting operation, waiting for this woman and this man to have sex outside of biblical covenant relationship. Caught in the act of adultery. Ironically, only the woman was yanked out into the streets. Some scholars believe the reason why is the man was a religious leader. But we can't say that. I don't know. I mean, there's just there's speculation on who the guy was. <laughs> but she was the one yanked out, brought before Jesus, and they said, the law says that this woman should be stoned because she was caught in the very act of adultery. What do you say? So here's Jesus set up, set up like a lot of Christians are today when it's like, I'm gay, but what do you say? All right, so here we are. There's tension in, in the audience, and Jesus does something very interesting. He stoops down and writes something in the sand. What it was, it could be a list of sins of the men who were gathered because Jesus knew the hearts of those who were standing there. It could have been the commandments. We don't know what he wrote. He could have been writing what he wanted for lunch. <laughs> but what was written there wasn't important. Because what he stood and said was, let the person who has no sin cast the first stone. Friends, we can't cast stones at those who are sexually dealing with these issues because we are also people with, who cannot say we're sinless, right? We don't, I, I, you know, it, I, I hear people say, well, we need to judge them. The one context we have for judgment of sin deals with people within the body of Christ. 
And if they are sinning, we are to judge according to them identifying as a body of Christ member. And if they are, we're to confront that sin and make judgment upon that sin. But in the case of people who are are broken, we approach not with judgment, but with with grace and truth. Okay? So let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Everybody walks away. The story's not done. He looks to the woman and says, Woman, where are your accusers? They've all left. And he says, neither do I condemn you. But this is what Jesus then does. He doesn't say, Don, don't worry about it. Go back and do what you were doing before. Is that what he did? Did he just coddle and, and then condone? No, what did he say? Now go and sin no more. Meaning, I, I, I restore you. Your sins are forgiven, but don't go back and do this again. Pursue a life of, of following me. So that's just one example. We, we also have the example of the woman who anoints Jesus' feet. We see it in Luke 7. And real quickly, the story is Jesus was invited to the home of a Pharisee, of a leader of the Jewish faith. And while he's in the home having conversation and having a meal, a woman comes into the room where they're having this banquet. And she approaches Jesus' feet because they would not be sitting in chairs like you are right now. They would lounge on pillows, on cushions, and lean in toward the table to eat. And so their feet would be out away from their body. And she walks up to Jesus' feet, and she begins to cry and wet his feet with her tears and used her hair, which means she lowered her hair. And any time a woman in, in that culture lowered her hair, it was a sign of sexual expression because women typically wore their hair braided or up. And for her to let her hair down was like a big no-no. And she, she uses her hair to wash the feet of Jesus, and so she pours this perfume, very expensive perfume upon his, upon his feet. And she's obviously expressing great love and gratitude to Jesus. We don't know the backstory about her. We don't know, you know, did she meet Jesus somewhere? We're assuming she did, and he interacted with her in a very kind way, but we know she has a sinful reputation. Some would say that she made her wages from prostitution. And the Pharisee says, if Jesus was really a prophet, he would know who's touching her, what sort of woman she is. And Jesus didn't care, did he? And what's unique about this setting is Jesus, rather than when he was talking to Simon, the Pharisee, he didn't look at him, which was a great disrespect if you didn't look at the person you were talking to, but instead he looked at the woman and talked to the man, elevating her in the eyes of those around the table. And he spoke to her, and he talked about whom much has been forgiven, there's great love. And he talked about how you didn't do any kind things for me, Simon, when I came into your house. You didn't anoint me with oil when I came in. You didn't, do, you didn't wash my feet. You didn't do anything like that. But this woman is. And he talked about how her sins were many, but she had been forgiven with grace. Now I want us to go, though, to John chapter 4, quickly. Because in John 4, we we see this woman at at the well. And the reason I think this story is important is because, like I said, this would be the farthest marginalized person in the culture. A woman, a Samaritan, a divorced woman, a sinner. A woman who's currently living with a man who isn't even a husband. So she's breaking every (laughs) violation of 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 the sacred law when it comes to appropriate sexuality. Okay, And we're going to see what Jesus does. Now, John 4. I want you to go to verse 4. It says, Now he had 
to go through Samaria. I know I've talked about this before, but Jewish people didn't walk through Samaria. They wouldn't touch soil of those who were Samaritans. That's how much the Jews despised Samaritans. The backstory behind the Samaritans were they were a mixed breed. They weren't pure Jewish people. So there was this animosity toward them. They wouldn't even walk through their country. Most good Jewish people walked around Samaria, adding days to their journey rather than walking through it. But it says here to Jesus that he had to go through. Why? For expediency? I don't think so. He had to go through there because I believe he knew there was a divine appointment waiting for him. And you got to remember, Jesus' ministry was short, three and a half years. I've pastored here 10 years. Three times the amount Jesus had ministered. And you would think, man, this guy had to be in a hurry. Why would he go through Samaria? Why would he talk to a woman at a well? Because he knew he was about his father's business, and he knew this was an encounter that needed to be recorded in Scripture to show us how we deal with people who have been pushed aside and marginalized because of their labels or their sin. So John 4. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food, and the Samaritan woman said, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And there's some explanation here, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that asked you for a drink, you would have given him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? She didn't really know who this was, right? Who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Here's something he's touching on. He's touching on the satisfaction that only salvation with Christ can bring to the human heart. Sexuality will never do that. Can I remind you, and I know this is bad news for guys in the room, but sexuality is temporary. Because in heaven, we know there's neither marriage nor given in marriage. Now, we're not angels floating on clouds, but there is a resurrected body we will have. But the truth is, sexuality is temporal for the purpose of enjoyment and reproduction. But that's coming in. If I identify only based upon my gender and my sexuality, I'm missing it big time because there is a soul to me that is eternal, and there's a part of me that is eternal. And only can I find satisfaction truly not through my sexual expression, but through a relationship with Christ Jesus. And that's what he's touching on here when he says, whoever drinks will be thirsty again, but I will offer water that will truly satisfy And it will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go back or go, call your husband and come back. Now, isn't Jesus just interesting in what he does here? He kind of knew this conversation was really going nowhere and she wasn't getting it. (laughs) But Jesus isn't like, you know what, you're an idiot. I'm going to move on, find somebody else. That's not what he did. Rather than just talking around the issue of water, kind of like we talk about, how's the weather? Weather's good. All right, weather. How about the sports? Well, I like sports. He just wants to drive right to the point now. And so he does. The woman, you've been trying to find satisfaction through all of these things, and you're not. There's living water I want to give you, but she's not connecting this to her spirituality yet. She's not getting what he's trying to say. And so he just goes right to the point. Go call your husband. 
And she honestly replies, I have no husband. Now, she was correct in the moment. But look at what Jesus does. He says, you're right when you say you have no husband. He affirms her reality. You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you said is quite true. He just goes right to the point. This woman has a history. And for him to bring this up had to sting. We begin talking around sexuality, friends. The reality is there is defensiveness that will come immediately with that. And that's why we have to be careful how we approach this conversation of somebody's sexual sin because there will be immediate deflection. There'll be immediate cover. This is not my problem. This is your problem. You can't accept me the way I am. That's your problem. Okay, but Jesus doesn't, doesn't stay there. So she tries to change the subject. <laughs> Sir, woman said, I can see you're a prophet. Our ancestors, and she wants to change the subject now to spiritual things, which is exactly what typically happens in sexual sin. They want to change it. They want to take scripture or take something true and say, well, this is the way God made me. I'm fine. And they want to make, that's what she was trying to do in a different way. She was trying to bring up an argument. And what does Jesus do? So there's, you can kind of read it. But I want you to go to, to uh, verse 23. A time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they're the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. And the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming, and when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Now, the fact is, this is Jesus standing right in front of her. Who is the Messiah? And so what does he say? I, the one speaking to you, am he. And just then his disciples returned and surprised they were, that he was talking to a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? And look, notice this, verse 20. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people. Now this is the part that baffles me when I look at this scripture. Because there's some idea behind the fact this woman went to the well at noon because she wanted to go alone. Because all the women talked about her. And she didn't want to be caught up in that drama. Because she was the talk of the town. So she came at noon, not when everybody else came. But look at what she does. Something happened. Something lit up within her soul. Because she goes back and she says this, verse 29, Come see the man who told me everything I ever did. All of a sudden, that shame of her past wasn't the issue any longer. There was somebody who spoke to it. Somebody who I think has a, something better to offer than just my identity or my broken past or the shame that I cloak myself with. He's got something better for me. And so here's the man who's told me everything. Could this be the Messiah? And what happens? They come out of the town and make their way toward him. All of a sudden, this woman who was of ill repute in her own community now becomes the number one evangelist to her town and people come out to hear about this Jesus. This is moving to me because I believe there are people who are looking for truth and they're trying to find it in their sexuality and once they can discover the truth of Jesus, I believe they will go back to their spheres of influence and say, 
there is something here. I know that we're trying to find satisfaction within our own flesh and within our own identification within us, and we're not going to find it, but there's this Jesus who's promised to satisfy. And friends, we got to be ready as a church for any brokenness, people who find hope in Jesus to come and be embraced and loved here. So what can we learn from this interchange between Jesus and this woman? Here's quickly five things. They're in your notes. If you're using the Bible app, they're there. But the first one is he didn't lead with condemnation. Did you notice that? He didn't look at that woman at the well and say, woman, you're a sinner. And I'm not going to talk to you unless you're going to listen to my truth. It's not what he did. What did he do? He built common ground. He had a conversation with her. She was kind of shocked that he would even do that, but built common ground. You've got loved ones or friends wrestling with these issues of sexual sin or, or homosexual sin, and the issue here is you, you don't want to lead with condemnation. It's not going to get you anywhere. In fact, what it'll do is it'll close the door quicker than anything else can, but you build some common ground. You know what? That takes time. That takes relationship. That means you're willing to just rub shoulders and be there. Now, we're, that's point one, so don't think that that's now condoning the behavior, okay? This is just step one. Step two, he engaged them in conversation about their lifestyle. He wasn't afraid to go there. See, sometimes we know there's this elephant in the room, and we don't want to speak to it. And it might take some time to build that common ground, but he wasn't afraid to go there and begin to talk. Not around it, but he just spoke Go call your husband. He wasn't afraid to do that. He engaged them in conversation, which means there was a sense of being understood and understanding. And in that context of being understood and understanding, then he began to speak to the lifestyle issues. And that might close a door, and I understand. Do you give up after the first door closes? Not if you're a follower of Jesus, you don't. You just continue to love, be available, and be willing to listen again, and then be willing to share again. Number three, he didn't compromise the truth, but treated them with grace and dignity. That's what's beautiful about the way Jesus ministers, and I wish we could get this better as a church. He didn't compromise the truth. And I don't believe in anything that we've spoken about on this particular topic that I have compromised the truth of what the Bible says about God's design for sexuality, but we can do that in a grace-filled way. And so he didn't compromise the truth, but treated them with grace and dignity, especially people who normally wouldn't get that kind of treatment from a religious man, but he did. What does that mean? He valued and elevated them as people. These are humans. Their sexual orientation, their sexuality will come to an end, but they are eternal created beings that need an eternity with Jesus and need to see past this particular challenge they're in that's keeping them perhaps from the greatest news of all times. Number four, he saw past their current condition and spoke toward a better way of life. You know, sometimes what people need is hope held out in front of them. And again, this, is not, this has got to be built in that context of relationship over time, but there needs to be some hope held out. There needs to be a sense that this is not the way it has to be for you. 
that there is hope, that there is a better way. There's redemption, there's salvation. You can find your identity in Christ. And number five, he saw them as worthy and able to enter a savoring relationship with him. In other words, nobody was too far from the reach of God's grace to save. If they would see their condition, then responded to that. Nobody was too far removed. He saw them as worthy and able to enter a saving relationship with them. You know, here's the deal, and i got to stop talking. But unlike those who can only dwell on a sinner's past record, which we're pretty much hung up on as, as self-righteous people, is hung up on their past record of sin, and we can't get past it. Unlike people that way, Jesus prefers to see the potential that love and forgiveness possesses for changing a person's heart. Here's what you have to know about interacting with people who are currently living under deception about their gender orientation or their sexual sin. You have to understand that this is how they are seeing it. This is the only thing they can see. But we begin talking about Jesus. We're not going to have all of a sudden somebody immediately change. And it may not happen in the first conversation. But there's a process. And here's the truth. You can't change their heart. You can't. You can't change their mind. You can't. You can elevate Jesus, bring truth in a grace-filled way, and stay consistent in loving and backing up that truth. You can't change them. So what happens? Jesus has got to get a hold of their life. They've got to make a step toward him. And when the Holy Spirit begins to do a work in their heart, that's the renewing work that you and I have no power over. But it has to happen within. And when that change happens within, then guess what happens? That begins to move in the way they live their life and the decisions that they make about their sexuality or whatever else. And some, like I said, they may still feel those same sex attractions the rest of their life and wrestle with that. And God's given the strength to face that. Others may find healing and find satisfaction in a heterosexual relationship. We've heard testimonies on all sides of that. But the important thing for us is to look at how would Jesus deal with this? That's how we need to approach this conversation as it comes to people who are in that gay community. And when they're realizing the end of themselves, I want to be there for them. I don't want to be ones who set, you know, do not enter signs outside the door of this church. People who are here, in fact, friends, honestly, let's be real, we're all broken people. We have a Savior. But we're not perfect. And what we can be is the love and the grace and the truth of Jesus. And you might feel, but doesn't that condone their behavior if I just keep loving them? Friends, let me remind you, you are powerless to change. You are powerless to change them. But we shared it last week. It's your kindness that leads me to repentance, O Lord. So that means each situation is different. You can't approach two people the same way. Jesus approached each of these women three different ways. And the Holy Spirit, friends, is going to give you creativity to do the same. So how do we deal with them? The same way Jesus did, with grace and with truth. And let the Holy Spirit do the only work the Holy Spirit can do. All we're called to do, friends, is catch the fish. Guess who cleans them? That's the work of the Holy Spirit. We're just called to put the bait out and hope they come. 
because they're tired of looking for themselves inside themselves. Let's pray. Father, we don't want to just talk about issues because these issues have names of people that we care about very dearly, that we love. And Jesus, one thing we know about you is that you loved when you came. In fact, you were known as a friend of tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes because you weren't ashamed to enter the messes of people's lives. You weren't too good to step into that mess and that mire and bring hope and truth and revelation and love right there in the midst of the messes. And God, I think that's what you're still calling your body, your church to do today is to not be afraid of the messes. Yes, they're messy. And we feel like we've got to clean it up and polish it and put a nice bow on it. But all we have to do is do what you did. Step into it. Value people. Express your love through grace and truth. So God, I pray for each person who's thinking of a name right now of somebody they love, somebody they know who is dealing with these issues. Infuse us, I pray, with that love. It's easy to be critical. It's easy to be judgmental. But that wasn't your way. So help us, Lord, to be an expression of your love and be willing to journey with people through the mess, through the challenges, through the confusion, knowing that you ultimately are the answer. And we thank you for that today. So help us be good news to those who need it the most. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand this morning.